Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. We're back at the Playboy Mansion, which means looking at a lot of young women look awkward, pretend to be impressed by Hugh Hefner, and, you know, mostly mediocre fights. I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but I, I don't understand the point of Playboy Mansion cards. Uh, there's nothing special. Felt like a promotional thing for Playboy. I don't know what Strike Force got out of it. I know we'll be talking about the salaries later, but not too much there in terms of, of uh, extra dollars to pay the fighters. So, I don't know. It's going to be a fun one. It's interesting, and there's a lot of good, a lot of bad about this show. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. Putting it a lot of good, a lot of bad. Definitely some some mismatches, um, some decisive finishes for sure that result from those mismatch, mismatches, and you know, very questionable stoppage that will probably be the big the big thing that we really disagree on and and and, and go into detail about uh, but let's we're going to get to all that for our listeners uh, that are new inside the hexagon is about walking through the major events fighters and milestones of strike force which was a very important and innovative mma promo- promotion that existed from 2006 to 2013 uh, the episode we're talking about as you might have guessed we're talking about strike force at the mansion 2 this was the second uh stri- and final thankfully uh <laughs> playboy mansion card for for Strike Force, I don't even know if there was ever any other MMA events held there, but it featured a quick return for Josh the Pump Thompson, who had just beaten Gilbert Melendez for the Strike Force lightweight title in an absolute barn burner of a fight. Uh, several other Strike Force fighters would return, including Joe Diesel Riggs, Corey Devella, and Luke Stewart. We would also see the promotional debuts of Pride veterans Kazuo Misaki and Mitsuhiro Ishida. So it's definitely some notable names on here. I uh, want to mention fallout from the previous event, Melendez versus Thompson. We saw the Strike Force debut of Misha Tate, who would, of course, go on to be a big, big star for the promotion, help put women's MMA on the map. In addition, uh, Billy Evangelista got his fourth Strike Force win, really setting himself up as a potential challenger for the new lightweight champion, Josh Thompson. And finally, Bobby Southworth had gotten revenge against Anthony Ruiz and beat him in a rematch that had the title on the line this time. All right, so let's uh, let's dive into it. I want to get into the fight announcements and that sort of thing, but there's a little tidbit from the uh, the Wrestling Observer that you wanted to, to mention here, Josh. Yeah, I just wanted to know that actually the Wrestling Observer did not cover the show or any of their affiliate newsletters looked up and down, but they did have a little bit of a mention about how there was some work behind the scenes to get this show to uh, – get broadcast live that they were trying to hook up a television deal to show it and uh, don't talk about what network says it fell through at the last minute and that was a disappointment to the strike force executives behind the scenes Uh, so they ended up streaming it live on suredog.com and uh, the show did air in uh, canada on the score so they did have some some tv and also we haven't talked about this much but around this time phil strike force I don't know if you remember, but they did have a show at least 2 a.m. in California on NBC, and it was sort of like the best of Strike Force and highlights. And uh, their most recent show before this did about 432,000 viewers. So as we talk about Strike Force and its effort to be number two in MMA, also the big part of that is distribution and platform and all of the different ways that they're trying to get on national television. And uh, this was one of the shows where they were they were trying, but I guess it didn't work out. 
Yeah, and I'll mention uh, in our uh, we had a bonus episode with MMA journalist John S. Nash, and we actually go into the NBC deal a little bit. It sounds great on the outside, but like you said, it was at like 2 a.m. on Saturdays, so not really a uh, a viable time slot. And and there were a lot of you know uh, UFC was looking at broadcast at this point, Elite XC. Um, that sort of thing, but it's a good segue to talk about the score deal. There was it was announced around this time that Strikeforce had come to an agreement with the score, which was a Canadian sports TV network, which uh, they were similar to the um, the NBC deal. Was gonna they were gonna produce a weekly show of you know highlights and that sort of thing, and it extended Strikeforce's reach. And the score was a big deal up in uh, the Great White North, so nice nice win for both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but yeah, let's get into the the card itself. And in early August, it was announced that Strikeforce would return to the Playboy Mansion on September. September 20th, uh, it was revealed that recent signee Hinatos Babalu Sobral would challenge Bobby Southworth for the Strikeforce Light Heavyweight title. And this would have been a, a big, big fight, but it would end up being postponed. Uh, it would eventually happen, and we'll talk about that soon. But both fighters got injured and got replaced on this card, so it ended up being a non-title scrap between Trevor Prangley and Anthony Ruiz. Uh, Prangley Ruiz was actually a rematch of a very controversial Strikeforce fight that took place at Tank versus Buentello back in 2006. In that fight, Prangley had caught Ruiz in an armbar, and the ref just jumped in and stopped it. Ruiz didn't tap and was very upset, and the the crowd booed Prangley. It was kind of kind of ugly. I, I really I wasn't a fan of it because Prangley didn't do anything wrong, and Prangley did have it in really deep. I mean, he, he had that armbar on very tight, so I think that would have been it. But uh, but you know, at the same time, Ruiz didn't tap, and you never know. So. Was it Josh Rosenthal? Was that the right? I, I don't know. No, I don't think it was Rosenthal. We would uh, we would see Rosenthal uh, later on in this card in a very controversial moment. So a little foreshadowing there. But uh, in a featured fight, the aforementioned Masaki would take on Joe Diesel Riggs. This would actually end up being the main event. Uh, also, Josh Thompson would appear in a non-title bout with Lions Den fighter Ash Bowman. Uh, for those that, that may not remember, Lions Den is uh, that was Ken Shamrock's team for a long time. And then Mitsuhiro Ishida, uh, a name familiar to Pride fans would take on AKA standout Justin Wilcox. And then lastly, Corey, the one developer would be matched up with Terry Martin. And I wanted to mention, as I was doing my research, I didn't know, I knew Martin from, um, the flying knee knockout. I think it might've been UFC like 54 or something like that, but it was a flying knee knockout from James, the Sandman Irvin at the very beginning of the second round where Irvin just kind of walks, you know, d- you know, they do that walk towards the middle of the cage, pretty much everyone besides uh, Diego Sanchez, who's a maniac and runs. Um, but they kind of were doing that walk and, and Irvin just kind of used that walk to build up and l- unleash this nasty flying knee that put Martin out cold. So I remember him from that, but he's got a really fascinating backstory. Uh, I found an MMA weekly article where it mentioned that Martin was a former gang member who had survived five gunshot wounds that nearly took his life at age 15 on the streets of Chicago where he was born. And however, he had turned his life around, become the first member of his family to get his high school diploma and then earned a bachelor's degree from Northern Illinois University and was actually at the time of this card was pursuing a master's degree in psychology which is pretty amazing. And I, I think I, I went back and tried to look and I believe that he completed that. I mean, he's extremely well-educated and, and all that. So really fascinating story. And, and no matter what he did in M, in his MMA career, when I mean, he did have some success, uh, just an amazing, incredible story. So, but yeah, um, let's jump into what was going on in the UFC at this time. Uh, no changes since the last strike force event, BJ Penn's still lightweight champion, GSP, Still the undisputed welterweight champion after stopping Matt Serra uh, at at UFC 83, and he would start a reign that would last. Uh, that this would start a reign that would last until 2012. 
Anderson Silva, still the U, the middleweight champ, Forrest Griffin, uh, now the UFC light heavyweight champion after beating Rampage Jackson. And then the the heavyweight scene was still pretty muddled in the UFC. Minotaro Noguera was technically the interim heavyweight champion, uh, but Randy Couture was still officially the UFC heavyweight champion, and he would be back to defend that title before the end of the year. The closest UFC event uh, that took place was UFC 88. took place a couple weeks before this second Playboy Mansion show. featured several very big fights. Uh, Dong Hyung Kim beat Matt Brown, who's still with the UFC, which is a pretty amazing uh, via split dis- decisions. Future Strike Force champ Nate Marquardt TKO'd Martin Campman with punches, punches, and future Fedor killer Dan Henderson. Decision one of the dirtiest fighters in MMA history, Husamar <laughs> Palharis. Uh, let's let's stop right there just for a quick second, Josh. I, I actually I put this out on Twitter, and, and for every I want to mention we have changed our Twitter handle and our Instagram handle so that way they can be one and the same. So it's now at the Hexagon Pod. So all you have to do on social media platforms is search for at the Hexagon Pod, and you will find us. That way, there's no discrepancies there. But I tweeted out asking who the most who the who are the dirtiest fighters in MMA history, and I'll. Josh, I won't put you on the spot other than to say I'm going to give you the kind of the ones that came to mind first for me and a few others that I've seen mentioned. Uh, but I want to see if you agree or if there's anybody that you feel different. But Paul Harris, absolutely. I mean, the guy doesn't know how to let go of a, of a very, very dangerous move in the heel hook. So he's definitely up there. Gil, uh, Gilbert Ivel, the Hurricane, I don't know if you remember him, but I mean, he knocked out a ref at one point. Uh, him put, sticking his fingers in Don the Predator Fry's eyes in mm. Pride is one of the most egregious cheating things I've ever seen. He's done some other stuff. Uh, so he's it's got, like, to me, they're kind of one and two. And I'm not talking about guys that were doping or anything like that. I'm talking about guys that did stuff that was dirty in the cage. Uh, you know, John Jones gets a lot of flack for fingers to the eyes and then also that kind of down kick to the knee that some people want to see outlawed uh, in MMA, but uh, he's another one that comes to right comes to mind. There's a guy named dirty Bob Schreiber in the kind of the early days of pride that was known for really, he did this. I remember he did an ax kick that was to the, the head of a downed opponent that was pretty nasty. So I remember him as well, but any, anybody else come to mind as far as, you know, dirty fighters goes? Well, I mean, um, this might be given a <clears throat> bad rap, but you know, Paul Daly, I think, you know, had a, had a bad reputation, you know, taking the late swing against uh, Josh Koscheck. And uh, there's certainly other fights he was in where nothing that flagrant, but he was definitely uh, sort of, um, you know, into it after the bell or, you know, inappropriate spots. Um, I think Paul Harris is the worst of the worst because you can literally break somebody's bones the way he would hold on to that heel lock and uh he would he would not let go and then he would just do it over and over and he would you know it act like you know he didn't hear the ref or whatever so he's probably the most the most flagrant uh that i can think of yeah and there's a um if you i kind of did a little bit of a deep dive on him and uh, Jake Shield, his fight with Jake Shields in the World Series of Fighting was pretty flagrant, and he made Shields really angry. And Shields like punched him after the bell and got in yeah. trouble um, for it. And then um, Joe Lozon, I believe, did a YouTube breakdown of 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 Paul Harris holding on to the holds and how long you should hold on to them after the tap and and that sort of thing. And he always acted like what what, but <laughs> you, you have to be a professional and know. You know, you have to be fully aware and conscious of what you're doing. And, and he just, it didn't seem to be a great, like, like on purpose, it just, but you know, regardless, you can't do that, especially with leg locks. So yeah, 
Paul Harris is lucky he never fought Mike Tyson. Cause, oh, you know, man. Mike Tyson well, bit off Evander Holyfield's ear. He one, because he was losing the fight, but also he complained about the incessant headbutting that Evander right. was doing when they were close and nobody called him on it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that would have been pretty nasty. All right, but back to UFC 88. In the co-main event, Rich Franklin got a TKO win over Matt Hamill via body kick. And then in the main event, Rashad Evans knocked out former champ Chuck Liddell with a sick overhand right. It was. Na- Do you remember this, Josh? Do you remember that that overhand, like kind of almost baseball, like throw knockout? Oh yeah, highlight reel. Time for Chuck Liddell to go. Yeah, yeah. You know. That was. It, it, and this would be the slide that would end the career of the Iceman. Uh, after this loss to Evans, he would get stopped by Shogun Hua and Rich Frank- Franklin with punches in consecutive fights before he retired, and, and then unfortunately came back in 2018 and lost to uh, to Tito Ortiz in that one-off MMA fight for uh, George. Uh, oh, I said George uh, Golden Boy for uh, De La Hoya's Golden Boy Promotions, and uh, you know obviously wish he hadn't come back for that, but but yeah, this would be uh, the, he. This would actually be his the first of, of that career-ending side for for the Iceman. So hey, you know, you mentioned uh, Jake Shields, and then you also just mentioned Martin Campman here. Do you remember Jake Shields versus Campman? It might have been his UFC debut. Do you remember I that don't. fight? Uh, no, I don't. And, and no. it was one of those fights where Jake probably lost, but he ended up winning the split decision, and uh, it was very controversial. But if you ever see that fight, I'm pretty sure it was Jake's debut. And he came in hot as this like jujitsu master, and they're going to match him up, match him up against GSP, which they eventually did. But um, I recall that Campman fight. Campman probably beat him, and the Jake got very, very lucky with the cards, uh, with the decision. So I don't know, something for you to take a look at when you have uh, you know some free time. You are correct. That was his UFC debut. It was October twenty third, two thousand ten, at one at UFC one twenty one, Lesnar versus Velasquez. Yeah. Uh, so they uh, prior to that, uh, Dana White say that Shields was most likely next for a shot the, at the welterweight title. Um, if he beat Campman, and after he beat him via split decision, that's when White later confirmed that Shields would receive a title shot against the winner of George St Pierre versus Josh Koscheck, uh, which was taking place at UFC one twenty four. So. There yeah, you, you should watch that. I think it's one of the ones where they're like, "Oh man, we're gonna make a lot more money with GSP and Shields than GSP and anyone else." So yeah, you got to win this question, fight. <laughs> yeah, you might question whether Dana got in somebody's ear or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, the uh, want to get back to this closest challengers event. There was a uh, a Strike Force challengers event on September thirteenth, which was a couple of weeks before. This was Young Guns three. No big name fighters on this card at all. A couple of familiar names though. Alexander Trevina, who had beaten Eric Jacob, who's the guy that had gone one and nine in the year 2008, we discussed on our last event episode. Uh, he would uh, get a decision over Gennaro Strangis, while George Interionoez, the Tongpo lookalike <laughs> that we talked about recently uh, at on the Melendez versus Thompson episode, would get submitted via armbar by Chris Bostic in the first round. All right, we've now arrived at the Strike Force at the Mansion 2 event itself. It took place on September 20th. 2008 at the Playboy Mansion in Beverly Hills, California, according to Wikipedia, which we all know is 100% accurate at all times. And, and uh, um, you know, just a $5 donation will really make a difference long term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, I've, d- I've done that. I think I do that about, I think I do that once a year. Cause I oh, do good for you. I yeah. use Wikipedia a lot. So I'm, I'm, well, I'm I mean, like, it's, it's, it gets a bad rap, but I mean, 
Most well, of the stuff is accurate. Come on. Well, I think, you know? I, and I think it's pretty easy to check. Look, if there's a citation, and if there's no citation, then take it with a massive grain of salt. If there is a citation, make sure you, if especially if you're going to use this for anything or repeat it to somebody, make sure you check the article, and make sure it's reputable. So I, I think it's pretty easy to check it. Uh, but but yeah, I, I man, I think it's great. I love man. Every time I watch a movie, I either during or afterwards, I open up IMDb and I always look at the trivia for that movie. I always look at the rating, look at the trivia, whatever. And then I always go over to Wikipedia and see if there's anything to add to it. And that's one of my favorite things to do. And I'll just annoy my wife during the show and say, Oh, Hey, did you know that this guy was also in, and you know, I'll just do that the entire, (laughs) I'll do that either before, before we go to sleep or whatever. But yeah, I think Wikipedia is great. So I I try to at least give my, my five bucks once a year. (laughs) But anyways, Wikipedia said that the attendance for this was 2,478, which I do not buy based on watching the event itself. I didn't see that. I also don't know how they get almost 2,500 people in there, but you know, I could be wrong. Uh, Wikipedia also added, and this did not have a citation. So I don't know if it's true, but they did have this at the first event, so I think that it is. It said, all guests were entitled to a top-shelf open bar, buffet-style <laughs> gourmet dinner, and wine-tasting party featuring the spirits of various California gold medal wineries. I mean, they had that at the first event that was confirmed by gorgeous George Garcia of MMA Junkie. Uh, you can check in the archives to hear our, our interview with him. Um, so I, I assume that they did the same thing. And I will also mention that uh, I just recently started listening to uh, another true crime podcast series that talks about this uh, Playboy playmate from the late seventies that was, she died, she was murdered at age 20 and it's walking you through how she became a playmate and, and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, obviously it's more focused on the crime side of it and she had this like psycho boyfriend and all that stuff, but you can hear what the Playboy mansion was like in the late seventies and kind of, you know, in its heyday, although this was a little bit past it's, it's prime, but it was still a big deal and all the stuff they were doing. And you could see, you know, you could see why to an extent that Strike Force would go here or any MMA promotion would go here. I mean, obviously you have a very male dominated sport, although I think it's a little less so now. Um, and, and, you know, obviously men like what beautiful women for the most part. So, uh, you know, it kind of seems to go hand in hand, but for the record, Phil, I like intelligent women first. That's okay, the number good. One good. You're, you're, I'm sure your wife listens to this show every single time. So, but. <laughs> um, but yeah, go go ahead. You, you found this uh, uh, YouTube video that you want to mention. I wanted to just note that that twenty four hundred number is interesting. But the biggest problem with these shows is I saw this YouTube video. I looked it up. It's set up like a wedding. I mean, there's like round tables, and people have to sort of face the back of their table to watch the show. Most people are mingling. They're not really into the fights. It's just not an MMA crowd. And I just, I'm so glad they never went back to to do this kind of thing because I just don't know what the payoff is other than you're telling, I guess, the person who's going to watch the show that you might see some scantily clad women also. But there is no TV deal in the U.S., so I don't really know how that matters. So I just, I mean... Both MMA fighting is great, and obviously the Playboy brand is successful. I just don't, at least with these two shows, see how they meshed. Yeah, I I, I agree. I don't really get it either, and I don't think it was good look either. So you're not going to get an argument from me on that. Uh, but what you might get an argument from me on is the commentary of Ken Shamrock, the world's most dangerous man. Ken Shamrock made his Strike Force commentary debut. 
At this event, he provided color as World Series of Poker veteran Lon McCarron handled play-by-play, and we had Jimmy Lennon Jr. back as the as the ring announcer. So with that, let's jump into the the fights themselves. Undercard at a catchweight bout, 195 pounds. Jesse Gillespie defeated Dave Martin via split decision. Uh, Gillespie and Martin had fought once before, with Gillespie winning by decision. Uh, you know, it was it was an okay one. Um, not not a it was obviously two guys that were very early in their career. But I do want to mention a little interesting note. Gillespie would fight only one more time while Martin was one and done. Or I'm sorry, was done with this one. Finishing 0-2 in his career with both losses coming to Gillespie. That's That's got to be pretty rough. Either that guy, if I'm Martin, either Gillespie becomes my best friend and we just you know laugh about this kind of stuff and secretly I hold this hatred in my heart for him the entire time for you know beating me in my only two MMA fights, or I just want to never hear his name again. One of the, one of the two. So, uh, but new, moving on, Brandon Magana defeated Brandon Thatch via split decision. Uh, both fighters would not be back in strike force. This was a welterweight bout. In fact, Magana only fought one more time in his career. Thatch's name might ring a bell. He fought multiple times in the UFC going two and four. Then at 185 pounds, Eric Lawson defeated Kenneth Segrist via submission, re- coming by way of rear naked choke at 307 of the first round. Lawson was a very strong wrestler, 6-2, and two, coming off a win over Jesse Gillespie at Melendez versus Thompson, uh, who he'd seen in the, the opening bout on this card. Segrist was undefeated at 3-0. and oh. And I got to say, I as I watch this, Kenneth Segrist looked like a serial killer standing <laughs> in the corner before the fight. I mean, he was just staring down. Eric Lawson prior to the bell. And he had this kind of like skullet kind of thing going on with like a little, like kind of rat tail thing at the back. And he would stare at at Lawson. Then he would slowly close his eyes and kind of breathe in. And then he'd stare at Lawson again. I mean, it was, I, he looked like he wanted to murder him. I saw that. I totally agree with you. The look was so intense though. It almost to me felt like he was also trying to convince himself (laughs) Like that, trying to, make, trying to, yeah, trying to that, make up for, for fear or something. Yeah. yeah, that he was about to fight. It was simultaneously the greatest combination of like courage and fear at the same time. The look in his eyes. It was almost like he was like, damn, I got to fight and I'm going to try to scare this guy because hopefully it'll make my fighter, my fighting easy. But yeah, you definitely don't want to ever see that look on the opposite face of somebody coming after you. Yeah, I, I, I was not, um, I was not thinking like, oh, this is a guy that <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I was kind of torn. I was like, either this guy's going to murder him or this guy is going to just get just blown out of the water. Cause it, it was, <laughs> it just seemed like he was trying so hard to look scary, you know? So, uh, but for the fight itself, the two, the two touch gloves and Seagrass thinking he was really slick, tried to throw a quick, right. I don't know if, did you notice that as well? Like he, he, like they do the, the glove touch. And Seegers, very unsportsmanlike, immediately tries to throw a right hand. And Lawson, whether he's either saw it coming or not, he ducked right under, picked him up, and turned around and deposited Seegers on the back on his back in front of the corner. Did you, did you think that was kind of dirty? Um, I didn't pick up on it that way. And I think, I mean, I saw that, but by the time he picked him up and threw him, I mean, I kind of, I was just focused on that. I kind of overlooked the stuff before, but. Um, yeah, it would make sense that he's trying to do whatever he can from giving evil death stares to 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 basically, you know, trying to take a shortcut. Yeah, I, it definitely looked like a shortcut to me. But uh, to his credit, Seacrest got a tight guillotine on Lawson, um, who defended it well. But that was really the 
you know, the story of the fight, Lawson getting all these takedowns uh, anytime he wanted one. He got one, and Segrist would grab a guillotine every time because Lawson would, left, would leave his neck out there. And I think if he'd been up against someone more experienced than Segrist, I think Lawson would have been in a lot more trouble. And uh, even without that, Segrist got the, the, the choke on pretty tight a couple of times. But in the end, Lawson was the one who got the submission win, and he got Segrist back, flattened him out, and with blood flowing out of his nose, Segrist was forced to tap to the rear naked choke. Yeah, I mean, they say looks kill, but they certainly don't know how to fight. And a good game plan always beats an intense stare. I mean, this guy got just mocked. Uh, and the look was gone, by the way. But by the time he was, um, you know, actually engaging and he was being squeezed and, and uh, Lawson was holding him, I mean, that look was gone. So uh, this this was good. You know, it's not really super exciting to to see this kind of a fight in terms of those who want to knock out in a big stand-up. But uh, Lawson was just totally on him. He, he was, he didn't let go too much pressure and Seagrass just eventually just, you know, he could not survive five minutes like that. Uh, he, he came out too stiff. He didn't really look loose at all. Uh, it's like, dude, take a chill pill. You got to relax. If you're going to be in there, breathe. And uh, he paid for it. He's just psyched himself out. I think. Yeah, I think he got in his own head too much. Uh, but Lawson would be back in strike force multiple times. Segrist would not. However, he seems to actually still be active. He last fought in 2019, currently holds an 8-7 and seven record, so not a busy fighter, but continues to kind of dabble in the sport, it seems like. He's probably in it for the money, right? <laughs> yeah, not if not, probably not fighting at his level. All right, in a welterweight bout, Luke Stewart defeated Jesse Juarez via submission coming by way of armbar at 455 the first round. Stewart was 5-1, coming off a loss to UFC veteran Tiki Gosen uh, by decision at Shamrock versus Lee. He's looking to bounce back and get back on track. Juarez was 6-4. This was a very classic striker versus grappler battle, and as usual, grappling one out. Uh, Stewart got Juarez to the ground several times, and right before the end of the first round, he locked in an armbar where Juarez was so tied up that he could barely tap. So it was a very nice win for Stewart, nice way for him to get back in the, in the win column. This was a good match. Stewart looked really good. He worked hard. He showed a little bit of shades of Jake Shields to me. Uh, just kind of that, that lanky sticking like glue to his opponent, not letting his opponent really get any oxygen. So I, I thought he did pretty well. The only thing I'd say about Stewart, and I've said this before, is that he just doesn't look like he wants to be a fighter when he's in there. I mean, he's, he's very focused. He's doing the work, but, you know, he's not Josh Thompson. This is not a guy who's in there who's having fun and smiling. And uh, that can make for a little bit of a a, 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 it takes away a little bit of the enthusiasm for for the viewer. And again, you know, for those of you who are listening and and like wondering, well, this is a fight. We're talking about the growth and development of Strikeforce and all of these things really matter. All the presentation matters. And we're sort of looking at which fighters stood out, which ones were just kind of solid and which ones may didn't have the personality that would have helped them become bigger stars. So, you know, in that context, I think Stewart was certainly way better than his personality would uh, would display every time he stepped in the cage. Yeah, and maybe, you know, maybe it has to do with the, this is a nice little segue, but this was actually the last win of Stewart's career. Uh, he would fight two more stri- times in strike force and lose both of them. So we'll discuss him a bit more, but maybe his passion for the sport was starting to wane at this point. And he was starting to realize that this was, you know, he'd rather be a tattoo artist and really focus on that versus versus fighting. So maybe that was what was coming through. 
but Juarez would not compete in Strike Force again. Uh, but he would fight a bunch of times in, in Bellator, and he does have a pretty big win on his record. He holds a win over current UFC middleweight contender Robert Whitaker. So nice, uh, nice feather in your cap for for anybody in the middleweight division. All right, we have arrived at the main card and opening things up. We have a 205-pound light heavyweight matchup between Trevor Prangley and Anthony Ruiz. That saw Prangley get his hand raised at the end after Yam's decision victory. As mentioned earlier, this was a rematch for the two of them. Prangley, who was 17-5 and coming in, was coming off a loss 10 months earlier to George Santiago during the final round of the Strike Force Four Men Enter One Man Survives One Night Middleweight Tournament. Now he was back, looking to do right things with inside the hexagon. Ruiz was 21-11. and 11. He'd come back from his decision loss to Bobby Southworth to get a decision win over Jeremy Freitag in Elite XC. And apologies to Jeremy if I mispronounced his last name there. Uh, but the winner of this fight would probably be in line after Babalu to challenge for the Strike Force Light Heavyweight Championship. So there was there were some stakes to this match. Uh, Hugh Hefner shown at cage side, and man, even back in 2008, he was looking pretty old, pretty haggard um, to me. Was he Vince McMahon old or old? No, he was not Vince McMahon old, definitely older than <laughs> Vince McMahon. But, you know, like the whole silk pajamas thing and pipe and all that stuff probably looks cool, like, you know, or probably look cool for him when he was in his 40s and 50s. <laughs> you know what yeah. I'm saying? But now it just looks like he's ready for bed. Like that's all that really tells me at that point. And when I say ready for bed, I mean ready to go to sleep. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. so – uh, yeah, just looking very well, old there. It might have been this shot, but one of the shots, there was somebody who was, they were showing him, handing him yeah, like came notes. Yeah, over and showed him some papers or something yeah, like that. Like, yeah, I couldn't imagine Hugh Hefner knew of anyone inside that cage at all. Oh, which... highly, highly doubt it. He probably knew who Ken Shamrock was or may, mm-hmm. may have known who Ken Shamrock was, but yeah. I highly doubt there was really anybody else that he knew there. And so. If you're Hugh Hefner, do you want to take your girlfriend's cage side to, to see, watch all these professional to, athletes? <laughs> yeah, much younger, good look. You know, seeing a good looking guy like Josh Thompson in there, and you're like, uh, I'm smart. I have more money than him. You know, maybe maybe just remind him that. But, anyways, um, but you could tell, and I'm interested to hear what you you thought about the commentary. But you could tell almost right away that McCarron, the play by play guy, knew some but not much about MMA called some of the wrong moves at times, but then he would surprise me sometimes and, and get the, get something right. That was a little more intricate than what maybe the average, you know, fan might know. So um, I, I thought he was okay, but I, I definitely not, you know, nowhere near somebody like Morrow or even, you know, Kenny Rice or, or one of those guys. So, Oh yeah, no, no, nothing at all. And uh, nothing will ever compare to Gus Johnson calling Seth Petrocelli's knockout of Kimbo Slice on CBS, the biggest upset in the history of mixed martial arts. Yeah. So um, every, <laughs> nothing is that bad. Um, yeah. I did, I did like Shamrock. Um, I, I thought he did well. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. We'll talk about, yeah. we'll talk more about them. Yeah. Uh, but early, uh, early cup shot from Prangley stopped the action for a bit. Ruiz had more power in his strikes, but it was a little wild. Did touch Prangley a couple times, but the big South African was able to withstand eventually getting a nice throw takedown. And he worked a choke, even getting Ruiz's back, but the American, reversed and landed some landed some from the top good first round i'd call it 10-9 for prangley great takedown by prangley to start off the second and that was really the story there it was complete domination for the aka fighter 10-9 if not 10-8 for prangley and that continued on into the third more takedowns by prangley who cut ruiz near the eye uh in the end ruiz was just never able to really get anything going and, and this time there was no doubt as to who who the winner was 
Yeah, Prang Lee fought a good fight. You know, he's a smart fighter. Uh, Ken Shamrock had pointed out in here that, you know, he's very muscular. Uh, he's very fit. He's got a lot of endurance. And uh, he did a good job. He had a game plan. Ruiz just could not stop that takedown. And, uh, I mean, I wouldn't call it, like, the most exciting fight I've ever seen. But it was a good display uh, of skill. And uh, Prang Lee did what he did best, which was, you know, wrestle and wear people down and um, I thought Ken Shamrock did well on this one in particular because he was seeming to know what was happening you know second before it would happen and much less flamboyant than Frank Shamrock uh, Shamrock has a, a little Ken Shamrock has a little bit of a down-to-earth quality about him mm-hmm. uh, whereas Frank is definitely more of a performance commentator so yeah yeah I, that's I, a, I, that's a, that's a good point. I, I I agree. Ken, I think Ken actually breaks it down a little more. You know, he's, oh, he needs to move his hips that way or that sort of thing. Versus Ken, like you said, a little bit more kind of selling while he's while he's talking. So yeah, Frank's uh, always working, and and Ken, oddly, he's the pro wrestler. In this context, he, he seems like the, exactly the kind of guy you want to be sitting next to at the bar talking to you, to you about the fight. Like he knew what he was talking about. Yeah, and all you have to do is look at his face or his arms <laughs> and know that he knows what he's talking about. So, uh, yeah, I, I thought I, th- I thought he did a good job too. Um, but both fighters will be back in Strike Force in the future, but neither would end up getting a title shot. And I will mention here and now, uh, actually, as we record this, I talked to Trevor Prangley on the phone earlier today, and we are scheduled to do an interview. Uh, which will end up, as long as it happens, will end up being our, uh, you know, our, our fighter interview that we will run. And we're going to talk about this fight uh, during that during that interview. So looking forward to connecting with Trevor and uh, getting getting his insight on this fight, as well as talking a little bit about the rest of his strike force fights. So looking forward to that. In the next fight, 155-pound fight between Mitsuhiro Ishida and Justin Wilcox. Ishida defeats Wilcox via submission coming by way of armbar at 121 of the first round. Ishida was a top Japanese fighter. He held a record of 16-4-1 coming into this. He had handed Gilbert Melendez his first ever lost 10 months before this event in the land of the rising sun. Uh, he had also t- had a strong run in pride going four, four and one with his only loss coming to one of my favorite, probably my favorite Japanese fighter, Takenori Gomi. Uh, this was his U S mainland de- debut. He had fought in, in Hawaii previously, but this was, would be the first time we would see him within the continental, the confines of the continental States. You know who my favorite Japanese fighter is, Phil? Who's that? Shinsuke Nakamura. And before you say something, he is a ah! fighter. So there you go. He was a fighter. He yes. was a fighter. I, I got no, nothing bad to say about Shinsuke. If anybody that can get in there and beat Bob Sapp, I'm a fan of. So no, no, no issue there. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go back to the Strike Force at the Dome show that we covered and kind of went into all that. So, um, but Wilcox, he would also be making his Strike Force debut. He's five and two, coming off a win over Gabe Rudiger, very uh, good, very solid fighter. So very strong member and another member of AKA, another one of these kind of blonde, like really really strong wrestlers that that AKA just seemed to attract like flies to honey. So, um, yeah. But funny thing here, I, Josh, I don't, did you notice this? During the in-cage announcements, Jimmy Lennon Jr. announced that Justin Wilcox was a member of the Ultimate Fighter Season 5. <laughs> and Mil- Wilcox made this face like, what? And like, and I had to look it up. I was like, I don't remember him being on the Ultimate Fighter. And I watched uh, – Season 5 was one of the – I watched 1, 3, and 5 for sure. So <laughs> I, I, I don't remember him. Uh, and I he was definitely not on any seasons of Tough. So – 
Uh, I looked, and I even looked up the season five cast to see who he could have been mistaken for. And I mean, there was nobody named Justin, maybe Gray Maynard, because I think he had like short, kind of a crew cut, uh, similar, I guess. And they're in the same weight class. But yeah, <laughs> that was really funny to see Wilcox like look at Lennon like, what? <laughs> that guy cracked me up. That's up there with Pat Patterson winning the Intercontinental title in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, <laughs> in terms yeah. of mythology. Um, I was disappointed by that because, yes, you could see Wilcox's look like, am I, do I need to go punch Jimmy Lennon right now? What is yeah. he talking <laughs> yeah, about? Am I taking on two guys here? <laughs> um, yeah. It's crazy, though. Obviously, somebody did some bad research for Jimmy Lennon Jr., and he just was reading off the card, which is even more disappointing because, damn, he's such a good ring announcer, and you're thinking, does this guy know anything he's saying on any of these words? Yeah, or it, just... makes you qu- it makes you question everything else, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but you mentioned Pat Patterson, who recently passed away as we record this, so rest in peace. Uh, Mr. Patterson, but uh, McCarron, the you know again holding, handling play by play, said something pretty ignorant at the beginning of this one, saying that Josh Thompson was high on his teammate uh, in in Justin Wilcox, and that with a um, uh, with a win here, that he be you know might be up next for a title shot. I mean, this is the guy's strike force debut. He's five and two overall. Meanwhile, you got Billy Evangelista has that many wins in strike force alone. I mean, it was clear that McCarron just didn't have the product or sport knowledge that he needed. And again, we're going to talk about this more at the end. To me, this is one of the big stories of this event um, was just the lack of consistency when it came to Strike Force's commentators early on. So we'll, we'll we'll dive into that a little bit more in a little bit. But this is a quick one. Some nice leg kicks from Yoshida to start things out. And he seemed to be waiting for Wilcox to shoot in. He didn't have to wait long. Uh, as soon as he did, Ishida seized the arm and locked in an armbar, listening an immediate tap from Wilcox, who looked like who looked like he was hurt to me. I mean, it was it was pretty nasty armbar. Are you not going to say anything about Ishida's trunks? No, I am not planning on saying anything about his little tiny. That that was pretty common for a lot of the Japanese <laughs> fighters, by the way. Oh, okay. Um, even Ken Ken Shamrock made a remark, but okay, I'll just say they were a little snug. We'll put it yeah, mildly. That's fair. okay. <laughs> okay. Um, this guy was great. I mean, he, he, I, I loved watching him fight, even though it was short. Um, he was smooth. He was in and out. He was quick. He was fast. And uh, he just took this, you know, the silver back out. I mean, he just, this guy was not able to get out of the gate. You know, um, I think we saw this a little differently. Uh, I, I felt as though Wilcox tapped really early. And I think it's probably because uh, Ishida sunk it in really quick and really fast. I'm used to seeing the guys kind of tough it out for a few seconds with that arm bar. Uh, but I felt like he, he, he felt it locked. He knew he was done. It hurt and he tapped. Um, it reminded me of Misha Tate and Ronda Rousey. Do you know if you remember watching Misha Tate's get contorted and, uh, she, she hung in there for a really long time. That's yeah, what hate the complete opposite of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's what hatred will do. You know, like Tate hated Ronda. <laughs> like, okay, I'm gonna lose my arm if I have to. But um, I don't know. I, I, that's probably not the most intelligent fight thing to say that he shouldn't have tapped so early when there was no way out. But I did feel that it was a second or two early, and I was disappointed in in him uh he wasn't going anywhere there was no escape so i think you got to do what you have to do so you don't have any long-term injuries but um i did um i did notice that you know and uh, i will know too just you know like uh hey uh you know it's, it's great to be in shape wilcox had that wrestler body 
Lots of muscle. He looked like he was just chiseled from steel. He looked great. Ashida was made for go. Like he's sleek, he's fast, and uh, he just he won the fight. You know, so don't ever judge a, a fighter by how he looks or the stare. It's all about game plan preparation. Dude, that is the next Nike slogan right there. Made for go. That, is that <laughs> like is that out there? Or did you just come up with that? Because I think well, that's actually really cool. Well, no, no, no. That's Triple H. That's Triple H telling Bill Goldberg. Well, not Bill, but telling Goldberg. Some fighters are made for show, and some fighters are made for go. <laughs> when would like is that in their like original feud? Yeah, I mean, maybe I dreamt it. No, I, I feel I feel like it was the original. Yeah, it was the original feud way back when. Back when Hunter was trying to bury everybody on the planet instead of like pumping up Goldberg as being the beast. He was basically trying to make fun of him for looking like a pro wrestler, but not really knowing how to be a pro wrestler. And uh, do you remember that time? Speaking of when Triple H was on the mic and the mic went out and he like banged it against his hand and then he likes you know um, got another one and he said. These microphones must have been made by Goldberg. They don't work well either. So, <laughs> no, I don't oh yeah, that's so that's it must a good have been. <laughs> that must have been during Goldberg's original run. But yeah, I guess yeah, I don't remember that. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I'm doing made for go URL go daddy as soon as it's done. It's mine. You right should, now. man. That's yeah. I'm like I just googled made for show made for go Triple H and nothing. I mean, there's a bunch nothing. of stuff that comes up, but it doesn't seem to be. Doesn't seem to be that, but. Man, dude, that's a T-shirt right there, made for go. I love that. That's a great T-shirt. Um, I'd buy it. All right. Uh, but both Ishida and uh, Wilcox will be back in Strike Force the following year on the same card, actually, with Ishida coming back to Grant Melendez a rematch. So looking forward to to talking about that one. Uh, we got three fights left on this card in a middleweight matchup. Terry Martin defeated Corey Devella via TKO coming by way of strikes at 208 of the third round. Devella was 11 and two, riding on an eight-fight win streak. Uh, seven months before this event, uh, Devella, who was nicknamed The One, had beaten Joe Diesel Riggs with a slam that had incapacitated him. Uh, this is a big opportunity for Devella to really cement, because it was a little bit of a, it seemed like a little bit of a fluke win. I mean, Riggs had been in a car accident, had some back issues. So this was a chance for Devella to really cement himself as as a, a true contender. Uh, Martin had some big wins on his resume. He'd beaten Chael Sonnen, George Rivera, and Ivan Salaveri. Uh, he was coming off a loss of v, to Vitor Belfort at a, a an affliction event, uh, and had actually lost three of his last four bouts with two of them in the UFC. But I got to say, for longtime UFC and Pride fans, I, I tweeted this out. Corey Devella, I actually got side-by-side photos of Devella and Guy Mesger. I mean, these guys seriously could have been brothers. If not, if not twins, they could have at least been brothers. I mean, they, they I mean, same, you know, skin tone, same hair, the nose. I, I just, I did, I, did you see that? I, I, man, they just, just, I couldn't believe it how much they looked alike. Well, I get the same thing all the time with me and Luke Rockhold. So I know what they're <laughs> talking about. Um, <laughs> but um, oh, yeah, sure they do. do. <laughs> um, I um I did look it up and yeah they look alike there's something about the nose that they look kind of similar definitely yeah anyways uh very noticeable height advantage for Devella he was six two while Martin was uh, was five eight so definitely a, a huge reach advantage for Devella good takedowns for Martin early on and uh, you know I I really felt like this was something where Martin was really trying to kind of stake his claim with that but I I gotta say man I just 
the the commentators were trying to talk up Devella, and I just was not very impressed with him. I mean, his his striking looked pretty pedestrian overall, you know, pretty JV, if you will. And and I mean, he did land a couple nice knees, but Shamrock was was you know giving him some some good commentary, like good critique in his commentary on this. But, uh, you know, I just was not impressed with him. But I will say he was the more aggressive fighter. And even when Martin got takedown, takedowns, defend, Devella defended well. And then as the fight went on, you would have thought that Devella was winning the way that the, the commentary was saying. I mean, you would have thought he was winning it pretty handily. And I just didn't see it that way at all. Martin was he was uh, wasn't really landing anything solid, but he had Devella on his back foot a lot and Shamrock and McCarron were, they kept talking Devella up saying he was winning, but that Martin would change, could change it all with one punch. And then it was interesting <laughs> just as they started saying that within a few seconds, Martin lands this really powerful kind of like Mike Tyson, like compact, compact left hook. And it put Devella on his back and they followed up with a very solid right hand. And that was all she wrote. Very, very sudden, violent ending to this and and I got to give hats off to Martin he showed really good sportsmanship and uh immediately helped develop off of the canvas which you're really not supposed to do because if he was you know if he was dealing with some 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 brain issues or something like that there that wouldn't have been wouldn't have been good but um yeah it just it was kind of it was a decent fight and I felt like Martin was the better fighter I just, like I said, I just don't know how Devella was 11 and two with a couple of pretty big wins in, on his record. I just did not see him as the, I, he just, he seemed pretty, pretty new, pretty green to me. So I, I don't know what you thought, but I, I wasn't a huge fan of the one by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> uh, well, Devella has a style that's a little bit unimpressive. And I think it sort of goes to a lot of the fighters on this show. Um, there was nothing about really anybody uh, well, Josh is a little bit different, but there's nothing about anyone that was explosive. Um, so I think there was a little bit of that. I think Devella may have been seen as the strike force guy. So maybe they're, they're told to pump him up and they wanted him to win. Um, I didn't really like the stoppage. Um, I realized that Devella was not going to probably come back, but I've seen guys take a lot more punches than that. And they let the fight go on. Robbie Lawler versus Ben Askren comes to mind. And I realized they're, Dana White probably just wanted to see Askren take a few more shots. But, I mean, do you remember that fight? But he just got bloodied and beaten for almost a minute of uncontested shots, and they let it go. Um, so, I don't know. I feel like that's one of the things that's inconsistent about MMA is that uh, some guys, they let take a lot of punishment, and some guys, they don't. And, obviously, he wasn't really going to get escape. But just like the submission here, it just... You know, if you let it go a couple more seconds, I feel like uh, you give the guy every last chance for them to for them to to come back. I mean, how many times did he get hit? Twice. What the big yeah, one? It's just and then that one left up? hand, and then the right hand follow up on the ground. Yeah, yeah. So, you could have, I guess you could have taken letting him take a few more. I guess, mm-hmm. but I didn't have any issue with the stoppage. Definitely yeah. not like the issues we will have with the the stoppage in the main event. But I, <laughs> yeah. I, I can see your point. But I I don't have a, I don't have an issue with it. All right, in the co main event. In a 155-pound matchup, Josh Thompson defeated Ash Bowman via TKO coming by way of punches at 114 of the first round. Thompson, of course, had just won the Strike Force light, lightweight title uh, from Gilbert Melendez. He was on a seven-fight win streak. Bowman was 9-5 and five and had won four of his last fights. However, none of his opponents were on the level of the punk. I mean, it, I looked at his record. I, I don't think I knew any of the names, so I nobody was even close to Josh Thompson. So this is going to be a huge step up for the Lions Den fighter. I, I do want to mention... Um, you know, having Ken Shamrock on commentary 
to me, if I'm Bowman, that messes with my head because I know that my trainer, my guy is on the call and he's, so he's watching me. He's right there at cage side. He's on the mic. So he's, you know, he's got to be somewhat, um, which he actually was very, uh, even handed about it, but that would mess with my head a lot. I, I would not have, I wouldn't have liked that at all. Uh, but so I just I wanted to mention that. But Gilbert Melendez joined Shamrock and McCarron for the call on this one, and he wouldn't be needed very long. Shamrock asked Gil how he felt seeing Josh with his belt, and he said he just thought about it every day. And Shamrock made a comment. He was like, I don't know about you, but, man, that would tear my guts out. And he said, you know, Gil said he had a lot of respect for Josh and, you know, made a point of saying that, but he was coming to get his belt back because it was really messing with him. Um, as for the fight itself, Bowman and Thompson felt each other out on the feet. Early on, Thompson throwing throwing a nice left high kick that Bowman blocked nicely, and the Lions then they called him a prodigy, which I, I think this put an end to that. Um, quickly gave the <laughs> champ a high five in the middle <laughs> of the, in the middle of fights, like, hey, nice one. I, and you know, I got they jumped on that. Uh, Gill and Shamrock both did, and they're saying that that's a rookie mistake. It lets your opponent know that they're in your head. I, I gotta say, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, Josh, but. To me, like when you, we've seen this before where guys are, I mean, they're in a slugfest. You think of, uh, uh, was the, the ultimate fighter one that started the whole thing? Um, uh, Bonner and, and Griffin, you know, that was like, you've like built, you, you've created something with this other person. And like you're in the third round or the fifth round and it's obviously it's been bloody and you've both landed shots and there's mutual respect now and all this stuff. I mean, I could see a high five for sure. You know, some guys will hug at the beginning of the final round. If it's been a truly memorable fight and all that stuff, you don't do that 30 seconds in <laughs> after you blocked a left high kick against a guy that you are, you know, definitely over in over your head with. Like I, 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 I thought that was pretty stupid of him. And I agreed with, with Thompson. I don't think it always with, I'm sorry, with, uh, with Gill and Frank, I, I don't think it's or, ah Gill and Ken for Lord. Good God. Um, I agree with them. It, it was really bad, bad look. So uh, yeah. I, I, did you notice that? Did anything jump out to you on that? Yeah, I thought that it was just ridiculous. I, I can't believe that you're going in there to fight the, the champion of the world. I know it's a non-title fight, but, I mean, come on. you got to do better than that. If the guy kicks you in the head and it hurts, then don't 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 sell that, you know? Just let it, just keep fighting because the second you do that, you let the guy know that you're, uh, you're affected. And that's just... I didn't like it, so I thought it was weak, and it made me think this guy's not going to last very long. <laughs> yeah, it it definitely was not one of the uh, one of the smarter things that you can you know that you can do, uh, and and it definitely didn't bode well for him. Uh, but shortly after that, Bowman did land a nice little right hand, uh, but that would be his last positive moment. Josh answered back, landed a shot of his own. He realized that Bowman was stunned a bit, and he poured it on actually landed another shot on the ground after Herb Dean had waved off the fight. It was kind of a little bit weird. Um, the two had a discussion afterwards uh, about it, but it was basically Josh thought that he was, didn't realize that Herb had waved off the fight, so there was just a little bit of a confusion there. But definitely a clear-cut, easy win uh, for the punk. All right, I'm going to shoot here a little bit because this fight really pissed me off for a lot of reasons. We talked about how he you know, gave a little bit of a high five, uh, right at, right at the top. Um, and you just wouldn't do that in a real fight. I know we've talked about this before and, you know, these aren't real fights. There's no biting or eye gouging or anything like that, but 
but you just don't do that. You don't say, "Hey, nice well, job well, kicking my." Hold on, hold on. We, we they're real fights, but we say they're not real street fights. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I'm sure you're saying, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, obviously they're real fights, but what I mean is there's there, you, you there's there rules. rules. There are yeah. rules to it. Yeah. So so I just that's not something that you would ever do if you're getting your backside pummeled you'd figure out a way not to get your backside pummeled so okay whatever he wasn't ready for uh, prime time against josh thompson second of all like what the heck was this like we're just coming off of josh thompson the biggest win of his career and they put him in there like in this match against this guy i mean this was just not good follow-up. I mean, it's he, it's like he's some mid-carter, mid-carter defending the Intercontinental title and Roman Reigns is in the main event or something. It's like Josh Thompson is the champion and he should be promoted in the main event. Now, I realize it's non-title, but it's about your fighters. It's about your stars. So I don't understand that at all. To me, they might as well have not even put Josh Thompson on the card. Maybe they're trying to give him a quick win, but it's a non-title fight, and that always backfires. You think somebody's going to run somebody over, and it's a fight. You might lose. So I, I thought it was very dumb booking. After that huge card in San Jose, you come back with Josh in the undercard, in the second from the top, against a guy who's clearly out of his league. I don't understand why that was the best thing that they could do with him. It was sort of a waste, and I think they blew a huge opportunity with Thompson as a follow-up to that big, big show. I'm glad that Melendez did some commentary, but it was not enough. And uh, I just I just don't understand why Strikeforce would would do that. Uh, Josh Thompson was not necessary on the show. And put him in the main event if you're going to. Um, and as a side note, nothing about this has to do with Josh. He was he was great again. His personality was great. Uh, happy, enthusiastic. Even after the fight, he did this weird endorsement or he was drinking. I don't know what it was. Some kind of energy drink or vitamins and hamming it up for the crowd. Total frat boy. <laughs> He's always having fun. But I just like uh, it was kind of a burial of Josh. I think I don't understand why he was in that role, even though he had the convincing win. Yeah, I I can't disagree with with any of that, especially the part about him not being in the main event. Uh, obviously, that's because Ash Bowman was his opponent, somebody that you know wasn't known and all that stuff. But I, I mean, he had nothing to to gain by doing this. Why make him do a camp and all that stuff if you're not going to put him in there with somebody like? Ishida, you know, or, or, or you had other lightweights on this card. You could have matched them up with why, why do this? So I, I agree with you. I don't understand it. I don't understand why they would do kind of these non-title fights. They seem to be pretty worthless. And for Josh, he had nothing to gain. You know, he blitzed a guy that he was supposed to beat, you know, it's what, what, what and then what if he had lost, you know, and, and then what if he'd lost? And again, it's a non-title fight. And then now you got to do that fight for real. And I, I just, yeah, it's just very, very boneheaded, questionable booking. You know, I, I just don't get it, but I agree with you. Uh, but Bowman would be one and done in strike force. We wouldn't have to worry about seeing him again. Be actually the first loss of a career ending slide. He would lose five more fights, ending his career in 2012 at nine and 11. Interestingly, Thompson would be out of action for quite a while after this, about 14 months. In fact, uh, I tried to, I just did a little bit of digging to see if I could, you know, find out why he was out for so long. Cause I did see an interview with him after this where it was saying, or, 
uh, I think it was a recap or something, but basically, you know, obviously not a scratch on him, not injured or anything like that. So I don't know what happened there. So I'm going to, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll check with Josh and see if I can get an answer, but uh, he did return. He would end up returning just before the end of 2009, and it would be to give Gilbert Melendez a title rematch. So they're very much looking forward to discussing that on a future episode. But we have arrived at the main event, for better or worse, a middleweight matchup between Kazuo Misaki and Joe Riggs. Misaki would defeat Riggs via TKO coming by way of punches at 229 of the second round in a very controversial stoppage. Riggs was coming back to strike force for the first time since getting slammed in his fight with Corey Devella at the At The Dome show in Washington, Washington State earlier in the year. He'd had back surgery after that and then come back five months later to get a win at a regional show. Uh, now he's ready to get back on track inside the hexagon. Uh, Misaki was a true grizzled veteran, a multi-time competitor in both Pancrase and Pride. He'd beaten Phil Baroni, Dennis Kang, and Dan Henderson. So a very, very capable fighter with a ton of experience, and we would see that come out to, come, come into play during this fight. Uh, tons of moment, uh, tons of tons of moments, tons of movements, uh, tons of movement early on from Misaki bouncing off the walls almost. I mean, there, there really wasn't a whole lot to the first round. Uh, both fighters landed a handful of strikes, but, and I'd probably give to Masaki 10, nine as he landed more, but very, very extended feeling out process. Both fighters got more aggressive in the second round. Riggs put Masaki down briefly with a straight left, but once the Japanese fighter got back on his feet, he landed a solid straight, right. And diesel, actually kind of teetered over onto his back, almost like a tree falling. Uh, but he woke right back up as Misaki jumped on him, and Misaki poured it on. Riggs was defending himself. Uh, however, he was just covering up, not improving position. None of the, you know, Misaki wasn't hurting him. And referee jo- Josh Rosenthal, though, had seen enough and, and jumped in and waved it off. And Misaki pulled a pretty dirty move. He dropped a couple more hammer fists after Rosenthal had stopped the fight. But Riggs was more upset with the referee than he was with his opponent. I mean, he was he was pissed off, to put it mildly. And I didn't have an issue when with the stoppage when I first saw it. Uh, and this is very controversial. I mean, I'm not saying I'm right, but I didn't see it. Uh, you know, I didn't see it as very controversial because Riggs was not intelligently defending himself, in my opinion. However, when I watched on replay... I can see Joe's point because, as Shamrock pointed out, Riggs' arms were up and none of Misaki's strikes were hurting him. So a tough call. I mean, this is where, like, you 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 can fault a ref for a ref saying, well, it was just going to continue to be more of the same. So, you know, that's why I stepped in. And it's like, well, you don't know that because what if he had turned and turtled and then pulled through Misaki's legs? I mean, you don't know what was going to happen. This he definitely was not in. He wasn't hurt or in danger at that moment. So I can see it without the benefit of replay being stopped. But then on replay, I was like, no, this is not not a good stoppage. So tough call, Josh. I'm sure you have a strong opinion on this. <laughs> what did you think? I hated the stoppage. Absolutely hated it. I mean, is it a fight or not? It is. It is it the main event or not? Uh, Riggs was defending. Uh, his hands were up. Um, you know, there's a lot of outcomes in that position. Your opponent might punch himself out because he's all, you know, jazzed up with adrenaline and he's trying to finish. Uh, he might get tired. Maybe you could pull him in, you know, down to your level. You can catch him with a kick. You can roll. I mean, there's things that you can do 
in that moment. And those are the moments where you see what fighters are made of. You see whether they can survive in that kind of a situation. We know it's possible. We've seen other fighters do that. The other thing of it was the punches were not landing. They were hitting his hands and his arms and nothing hit his chin. A couple of things, right? Uh, it's all about uh, perception. Uh, Misaki was fast and he was throwing in flurries and it didn't help the way Riggs fell. I mean, fe- Riggs fell like he got popped hard. The problem was his fall was much more convincing as, as impactful than it actually was because he was actually alert once he hit the ground. Um, I didn't see uh, the, the, the referee doing anything, Rosenthal. He's not talking to him. He's not asking him. Um, he, I don't know if he could see his eyes or not because he was covering up. But um, I just feel like it was too... Soon, You have to allow these fighters the opportunity to show what they're made of. Can they come out of this position? Especially since none of these blows actually hit Riggs other than the first one. Very bad stoppage. I mean, if we're going to point fingers at Riggs that he's got to take some responsibility for. Um, you know, he had just hurt Masaki right before that, and he kind of walked in a little bit gingerly, and he got counter-tagged, and so he needs to learn from that. Like, if you have an opportunity, you got to jump on it. You can't leave it in the hands of the judges. You can't leave it in the hands of bad referees. Referees make mistakes. So, uh, you know, ultimately, Riggs got popped, and he paid the price, but I think that we had to let it go, and... and, and it was the main event. Shouldn't have been the main event, but it was the main event. So, whatever. Um, I I didn't like this outcome. Yeah, I like I said, I can't I can't disagree. I, there was, yeah, it was. You make a lot of good points there, and I can definitely see that. I can see Josh's point in the moment, but you know, yeah, it was it was. I could see why Riggs would be so upset, and he was. He was quite angry about the finish of the fight. Gave several interviews talking about it. And one, he said he was, quote, waiting for Misaki to stop punching. And, quote, not a great game plan. But, again, he wasn't being hurt. Um, so I, I can see why he was upset. But you, at the same time, you can't just cover it up. You have to, even if the strikes aren't hurting you, you have to show that you're trying to improve position or that you're actively defending. You, you just can't do that. So I can see both sides of it for sure. But in the end, I'd say, yeah, it was a bad stoppage. Uh, Riggs would be back soon for Strikeforce while Masaki would also return, but that would not be until 2012. So we'll be mentioning him uh, for for a while. So that's it. Uh, so let's wrap things up. Um, no fighters pop for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after this show. Again, I thought Kem Shamrock did a good job on color commentary. Uh, Lon McCarron was out of his element, but he could have been worse. Um, they were decent, but uh, is that what you're looking for if you're trying to make yourself out to be a you know a big time MMA pr- promotion? I mean, Strikeforce should have had a consistent commentary team from the outset. Even if you try, I mean, we're two years in, and we've got a, a new commentary team for this event. So it just, I think that really really hurt their uh, the quality of the of the you know, what was being portrayed on, on, you know, on broadcast. I, I just, I think it's a bad look. And, and I, I wish that they had had somebody like, uh, you know, whoever, I mean, like, even if it was Brian Weber and Frank Shamrock, like at least have a consistent team, you know, I mean, if Mara's not available at this point, if he's busy with pride or, I mean, get Steven Quadros who would do some commentary later, but there, you know, it just didn't seem like there was uh, any consistency there. And I think it hurt them overall. The commentary team really is what makes the viewer comfortable. You get 
into these rituals and these routines and it becomes part of your your family to some degree i mean when you when you go to watch sunday night football you know you're going to get al michaels and chris collinsworth they're they're familiar um you you can expect consistency in the ufc it was rogan and goldberg for for so long and uh that was like when you heard it you're like oh there's ufc on that was far more familiar than maybe whoever was in, in, in the cage fighting. And Strike Force changed way too much. We never really got settled in on a, on a team at this stage because it was always experimental. It was always like, Oh, let's put Ken Shamrock in there. He's got some fighters on this card. Um, oh, let's get this person. Oh, let's pull in this celebrity from this other genre and we'll see if maybe we can appeal to young people. Um, it wasn't actually ever televised. So it's like, yeah, it did not make a lot of, a lot of sense. And, uh, as good as Scott Coker was, some of these little details, and I don't even know if he's entirely was in charge of all of this, but some of these little presentation details were just a little off at this stage. Yeah, I, I agree. Just further illustrating my point, you know, I I, I think it hurt him. So, uh, but total disclosed disclose fighter payroll was $159,000 because Yomasaki only made $1,400 for his main event win, while Joe Riggs made $20,000. Josh Thompson made forty thousand, including a twenty-one thousand dollar win bonus. Ash Bowman got two thousand. Trevor Prangley got forty thousand as well, while Anthony Ruiz got six thousand. So overall, despite some watered-down matchmaking, I thought it was an entertaining event for the most part. Uh, but really, more of a junior, like really, you know, somewhere in between what should be a major tentpole event and like a challengers event. It was definitely not a huge uh, event, um, but you know. Kind of, kind of a bummer to have a questionable stoppage in the main event, which hurts things too. But there were some good finishes. Uh, what, what did you think overall, Josh? Should have been called instead of Strike Force at the mansion. It should have been called Strike Force in your house because <laughs> that's the kind of show that it felt like. Uh, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> um, I was not thrilled with the show. Um, at times, it was a little boring, and mostly it just felt unfamiliar. Felt a little bit awkward. Um, you know, on the bright side, it had less of that Playboy Mansion feel that the first Playboy Mansion show had. I, I think it was darker for some reason. We didn't see as many of the empty seats and as much of the scenery and the background as we did with the first show. Uh, we did see Hugh Hefner. We did see him with uh, with uh, his entourage. Uh, but um, it did feel more like just a, a fight card. At least that was my experience. And I thought uh, Kenny Shamrock did a, did a good job. Um, I think that uh, we needed a, a, a play-by-play person who was a master of MMA. And then you could maybe experiment a little bit with the color commentator or a third person in the booth. Uh, we still don't have that yet. Uh, the fights were fine. Um, there was not a tremendous moment, uh, a super shocking KO. You know, we had, did have a good um, submission that was kind of cool. But overall, I just felt like I didn't recognize a lot of the characters. And that's one of the things that was difficult about Strike Force at the beginning. A lot of moving parts, a lot of people in and out from the actual fighters to the commentary team, to the presentation. Uh, it was just sort of off. Uh, as, as somebody who loves MMA, obviously the fights are what matters. And this show was, it was just fine. It, it was not tremendous by any means, but Strikeforce would 
would get better. Um, I, I just think the sad part is we still at this point in time in September 2008, and they've been around for a couple of years, we have these super highs and these super lows, and we just never quite know yet what to expect with a Strike Force show. Yeah, uh, very well put. I, I agree with all of that. Uh, so it, I'm glad we're moving on from this and we don't have to deal with Playboy shows anymore because they weren't the most fun to cover. But, uh, you know, some nuggets that came out of this. We are working on, uh, you know, some of our our upcoming episodes, like I mentioned earlier, kind of had breaking news that we're going to be talking with Trevor Prangley and that's going to be the, the fighter interview, so to speak, for this show. So I'm looking forward to delving into that. After that, we're covering Strikeforce Payback, which featured a main event of Dwayne Bang Ludwig versus Sammy Morgan. Also on that card was the legendary Frank Trigg. Uh, we are supposed to talk with Frank. I don't know if it's going to be in time for that show, so it may end up being a bonus episode. Um, so we may end up talking to Bang Ludwig for that fight, uh, for that event. But I'm looking forward to covering that event itself and then talking to those fighters as well. Uh, we've also got an interview with former Strike Force light heavyweight champion Hinato Babalu Sobral. Uh, that should be coming up pretty soon. So some good stuff that's going to be happening. Again, you can reach me at phil at insidethehexagon.com. Uh, we would love to hear your feedback. You can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at the hexagon pod. So make sure you follow us there. Uh, always got some good interaction with various fighters and different things like that. We always put out fresh content. So please check us out there. And then finally, please remember to rate and review the show, especially on Apple podcasts. Uh, we appreciate every single review that we get, every single rating that we get. We'd love to hear more from you, more feedback, but, but please help us out with that. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. We hope that you will stay safe and you will stay healthy. We will see you soon. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with Breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with Breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with Breslow the business of sports betting podcast